0: Welcome to the Mad Mum Lukes. I'm Mahin, and along with me today are my co-hosts, Sheikh Hamir Saeed and Sim. Today we've got a very special guest on our program, whose name I'm not going to mention yet, but before we get into the actual content of the podcast, I'd like to say that on the Mad Mum Lukes, we don't discriminate on who we bring in as far as the person must be really famous, or if they're really an unknown, we won't say no to them either. And this brother uh, is someone that most people in our community won't know. But I decided to bring him on for this reason. He's going through a process right now. And he's not a hafiz or an alim or a CEO of a major corporation. But inshallah, the way I see his life going, I see a lot of those things happening for him in his future, if Allah wills it. And we don't praise anybody above Allah Ta'ala, but I do definitely think he is, you know, one of the gems in our community So without further ado, I want to introduce uh, Brother Salman Razak. He is a good friend of mine. I've known him for about the last seven years, a Chicago land native who attended undergrad at uh, Stanford University in the Bay Area, and then is currently a management consultant at McKinsey & Company, uh, which is the world's number one uh, most prestigious management consulting firm, and some could argue the most prestigious company to work for anywhere globally. So, without further ado, uh, Salman, welcome. Jazakallah khair for coming on. Uh, Assalamu alaikum.
1: Welcome, salam. Thank you for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Um, I want to start. Let's go back to your high school days. I, you went to high school like Morgan Park Academy on the, uh, somewhere in the South Side, right? And then, you know, you're from this group in the South Burbs for the most part. Uh, talk to us, t- take us back to your high school days. Who are you as a person from a religious point of view? And also tell us a little bit about, you know, your background back in high school and what you think you had to do to get into Stanford. As far as I know, Stanford, Maybe the toughest school percentage-wise, that from an admission perspective, to get into country into country, I think it's like eight percent or six percent or something obscene like that, right? So,
1: absolutely. Um, so, I did go to school in the south side of Chicago. Uh, Morgan Park Academy. Um, grew up in uh, the south burbs, so Oak Lawn, Orland Park area. In terms of, you mentioned religiously um i grew up like most suburban desi people um you know my parents are pretty religious we would go to the masjid every once in a while there was sunday school involved um so i would say it's a it was pretty pretty typical of the typical chicago muslim family nothing uh nothing extraordinary there in terms of the academic side that you mentioned at Morgan Park Academy, it, was, uh, it wasn't a religiously affiliated school, so you had people of all different faiths, backgrounds, that sort of thing. But there was a certain element of being in your comfort zone. Um, you, didn't get, you didn't get people that challenged your beliefs. It was one of those things where you believed what you did. You, had, you did your thing. Nobody really challenged you it was one of those, you do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. Um, so I would say one aspect of the development on that front was whatever I believed in, nobody challenged me. I was very comfortable being a Muslim. There was never, oh, you know, I never faced any Islamophobia or things like that in high school or, or uh, middle school. On the academic side, it was, um, most people focused on academics. That's really where uh, students at Morgan Park Academy really focus their time on. For me, I Always had the goal of going to a top tier school for as long as I could remember, especially at high school, that moment, that was something I really wanted to do. The, there's many ways people go about that. Some people over engineer that process. They almost reverse engineer. Okay. I saw this person get into Harvard or whatever it is. And they did these five things. So I have to replicate exactly those five things. The problem with that is you beca- you're not, that's not you. It's very rare that those five things are going to be exactly what you're really passionate about. And. The first thing I did is I talked to many as many people as I could find who, you know, went to Stanford, went to Princeton, whatever it was, um, just to get behind what they thought of, what advice they had for me. And over and over, the advice I always got was do something you're passionate about and do really well in it. It's If you're into social justice, let's say, but you've never attended a rally, you've never mobilized anything, uh, it's really hard for that passion to be considered authentic. And I would say most top tier schools, that's what they're looking for is somebody who's authentic in what they're doing and has accomplished a good deal in that, uh, in that space. Uh, for me in particular, I was always one of those people that I, I was just curious about learning. I would say if, if there's one quality I had, uh, I was just curious about many, many different things. In college, sorry, in high school, I did really the gamut. I competed in, competitions, uh, won some stuff at the state level.
0: Like what kind of competitions?
1: There's something called... Um... I forget the acronym now, but it's called WISE. Uh, It's basically a competition. You take a test and uh, based on your score, you get awards. So I won a few medals there. In 10th grade, I've always had an interest in architecture. I loved being in Chicago. You know, I I took the boat tour uh, that they offer and really liked uh, what I saw. And um, I always found that fascinating. So in 10th grade, I remember doing a a research paper where we, uh, after the Chicago fire, Chicago was actually rebuilt in a much more drastic way than people realize. And there is this theory that, you know, the United States, if you consider it was a colony of of England, obviously, it's been one of the few colonial projects that has been very successful. Um, You could argue of all the European colonies, it's the most successful. And there is this theory that the reason for that is uh, uh, something called the Atlantic Crossing. Like the United States took... Really the best of Europe, more so than any other country across many different aspects, whether that's science, architecture, whatever it is. Many other colonies, um, were all daisy. So, I mean, in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, what have you. Um, <laughs> one of the things we, we adopted was driving on the left side of the road and yeah. the parliamentary system, but other things scientifically, we may, those countries may be lagging a little behind. Um, but the United States really imbibed all the good and improved upon them. And so I just argued in my paper that, uh, that extended to architecture. Um, you could see a lot of parallels with, uh, the Chicago system with what Paris had done. Um, and I managed to win an award for that as well. And above all else, I, I was one of those people that, um, I worked really hard in school. Um, I made sure that, uh, you know, the teachers always recognized that. And, uh, alhamdulillah, I applied, uh, managed to get in and, uh, decided to go. I will say though, back then it was a little bit easier. I think when I applied, uh, it was probably around 10% I think is what they took. Now it's down to like 5%. So it's gotten much harder uh even in the time that I've been uh <laughs> that I applied.
0: Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. So now you, you you move out to the Bay Area, right? And um you majored in uh, biology and political science. You know, you mentioned interest in architecture, but you know, but he also mentioned that you're kind of like interested in a lot of different things. Why why did you settle on those two subjects uh, as far as the study?
1: Yeah, so I um I ended up not majoring in poli sci, um partly for a number of reasons, but but once I got to the Bay Area, um going to college is one of those things where you're in high school, you're a little bit resource constrained. Uh, if you want to take up fencing, that doesn't exist in many high schools. If you want to play polo, for example, that also doesn't exist in many schools. You go to college, all of that is available. Um, you, you, it's really hard to not do, not, to, not to want to do everything and actually try to do that. So. I would say the first couple of months, it was a little overwhelming. I mean, you have everything at your fingertips. Um, you're, you know, on campus, you're living in a dorm. So you're spending basically 24 hours a day, essentially, uh, at school. Um, so it it does get really draining. Many people don't think about it that way. So certainly I, I used my first two years at Stanford to really feel out, um, what I wanted to study. I didn't have a set goal of I want to do bio. Um, I was good at bio. I, found it very fascinating, uh, as a subject. And I also found political science really interesting as well. Uh, one of the advisors that, um, I skills still keep in touch to this day, he had served under, uh, president Clinton's cabinet. And I went to him and told him, uh, you know, I'm thinking of majoring in biology and political science. And he asked me, well, why do you want to do that? That's a lot of work. Why would you do that? And I didn't have a necessarily good answer for why I wanted the two because um, his argument was, you know, do, do you want to go into law school? Is that what you're trying to do? And I said, may, I mean, I didn't know. I said, maybe. He said, you realize you don't have to major in anything to get into whatever it is you want to do. It's very unlikely that your major is going to make or break it. Um. very few very few people out there major in what it is they end up doing so just do what you want to do and use that extra time to do the other subjects you want to do because if you major in something you have to take this list of courses you can't just take whatever you want um so biology was something he actually pushed. He said, uh, you know, get something, get a technical degree. And if you really care about political science, you and I will sit down and we'll do like a one-on-one. You'll read a book and we'll discuss it. And honestly, by the end of it, you'll, uh, we'll even do papers and everything. So you'll have all the learnings of a degree without the actual paper form. Um, mm. So I ended up majoring in biology for that reason. Um, so with that
0: being said, that's like a, you know, I don't know, uh Sheikh or Sim, how, like your, the communities we grew up here in Chicago or in Ohio, the Dacey mentality is completely contrary to that, right? Like, as far as like what you study, it's like you like if you tell someone you're gonna study like sociology, right? And then you or history, like that's useless. <laughs> like, you know, obviously, I mean, you ended up studying biology, which you know, and we'll we'll get into this a little bit later, which kind of trends into medical school, right? For the most part, for most <laughs> people, especially Desis. Uh talk a little bit about that whole mentality a little bit in our community. That kind of maybe sounds like it's
1: wrong. Sure. Um, The way I would think about it is at the end of the day, you have to make yourself happy. My dad, one of the things um, that I've always appreciated is my parents have both been very supportive of um, everything I've done. They've uh, like many daisy parents, I'm sure they would have had a preference uh, for career paths or what have you. But um, something my dad always told me is at the end of the day, you're the one who has to wake up at five in the morning and go do your job and if the only reason you're doing it is because somebody 10 years ago told you that by doing it you're you know going to have this status you're going to have this much money uh it's a really bad reason to go you're not going to want to get up some mornings and that becomes an issue um in terms of you mentioned the daisy mentality that can that can sometimes take over uh the one thing i would say is you know yourself better than anybody else. um you almost have to bet on yourself. You have to understand that if you're if you've always had high aspirations you've always done well, why would college suddenly change any of that like, What I mean is if you're always a top student um let's let's use that as the uh the example just because you major in history, why is that suddenly an indicator you're going to fail? if all your life you've always been top of your class, you've done very well. Uh, Most people would look at that and say, whatever it is you major in, you're probably going to do fine. If you're, you know, middle of the road, let's say, you're probably going to, you know, go through that, whatever it is you've historically done, you're going to probably perform at that same level, even, even in the future.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think that's mainly with the older generation, as far as um, going through a specific career path. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of just dying out now. It's not as, as it was when we were younger, I I think, because there's so much diversity now and you know uh, there's so much productivity with youth in different uh, professions i don't think it's
0: is it, do you guys think it's that big of an issue now anymore well the thing i still hear it a lot like when i talk to like my parents or like my in-laws or you know their generation yeah it's the older generation it's, it's not it's, in it's our generation like, our, our generation i think we figure for our kids it won't be an issue right yeah um but it's still there but you think about it you you had to deal with it like we're most of a lot of us are still dealing with that old generation because even the kids who are now in high school might have parents in their like mid to upper forties who have the same mentality. Actually, yeah, I didn't think about that. That's true. You know, like you and I and Sim and Salman, we've got, you know, we don't buy into it, but <laughs> there's still we're still we're still. St- I think it's an immigration issue too. Like like when you came to this country, um, yeah. probably, and that kind of impacts how your outlook is. A little I, th- bit. I think
3: more more. That problem hasn't completely gone away because of (laughs) immigration. There's more and more newer Muslims from India and Pakistan who still come Mm. to this country holding those attitudes, and they're going to try to force their kids in a certain direction. Yeah, I remember when I was young, and uh, I told my parents I wanted to pursue political science, and the puzzle look that they gave me was... uh, Something that I wish I could take a picture <laughs> and show you guys because <laughs> that they were they weren't having it, and uh, I eventually I, I I was like a, a parent pleaser and I didn't I didn't do political science, but just like uh, he said, I'm, I'm I went off and I studied on my own, and I pretty much have the same type of education in that respect, but it was self taught just by reading mm-hmm. a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that normal? I,
2: mean, I I really like that gesture that your professor, he's like, you know what, we can just go through a private study of whatever you want, political science. Do, do professors usually do that for uh, for students? Um, like, basically, he would certify you without, you know... It's not going yeah. yeah,
1: I guess so. I mean, there's no there'd be no paper or anything. Yeah. Um, the thing I found is, you know, it, you should always ask. I don't ever see the issue of... Wondering theoretically, is this possible? Um, you just ask, and if they say no, then you have your answer there. Um, I think the issue with that is you're really doing it for the love of the knowledge you're not getting like nobody's ever going to recognize that as oh you know political science you know no law school is going to say oh you know you didn't get a degree but you know your professor you and your professor studied and he claims that you know all this stuff about political science uh that probably won't work but you're doing it because you're really fascinated by the Mm. um by the topic i would say
0: cool so now religiously now stanford back to back to stanford uh you know, and I come from a very conservative MSA, Ohio State, on the opposite spectrum. I heard Stanford is a very liberal MSA. I remember we've talked about it in the past. Um, Uh-oh, so here talked goes a little bit MSA. about <laughs> what, uh, kept you on <laughs> track. MSA <laughs> wars. <laughs> kept you on track during that time. I know you alluded to, like, the Association with some Shayuk out in the Bay Area, but talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So, um, Stanford certainly is more liberal than uh, other MSAs when I talk to friends who have gone elsewhere. Um, you know, Stanford is the first time in my life I've encountered um, a Shia person. Um, you know, I, I was at a prayer and this guy comes up, puts a stone next to him, and I was so confused. I'd never seen that before in my life. So, uh, you know, Stanford is one of those places where it's good. There's a good aspect to it. I, I like that there isn't this in, t- in within the community of, oh, you're, you're this, you're that. I think most people recognize that, look, there's not many of us. There's probably like 100, 150 students who are, who identify as Muslim at Stanford. At the end of the day, we all want to pray drama. We all want to, you know, do our thing. This is, we're not going to solve this issue that has existed for however many years in an afternoon or something or four <laughs> years that people are there. Right. It's a good way um, of looking at it. Yeah. And so that, that was one good aspect of it. In terms of keeping on track, You know, in college, I think I alluded to this earlier, where in high school, the high school, at least my high school experience, nobody really questioned your your faith, like beliefs that you hold dear to your heart. But college is really the first time where that aspect was questioned. People asked, "Okay, you believe in this. Well, Well, why? That doesn't make any sense to me. And there were a lot of questions that I personally wasn't well prepared for or hadn't thought about. And the very first time I was dealing with these questions was when I was, you know, 2, three thousand away from three thousand miles away from my family, other support systems, everything that I'd built since I was a kid, and so uh, you know for me, I certainly questioned a lot of things you know th- with the msa i I went I did the nominal things I went I hung out with people, but it wasn't uh, i I certainly think spiritually I wasn't at the same level that I was in 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 high school. And I think that's what really when you start to wonder how much of it was to use a sports analogy, the system or, you know, the personal person, right? The player. Um Because I think at home, uh, obviously your parents choose your beliefs, whether you're, you know, a vegetarian, if your parents are vegetarian, you're going to grow vegetarian. Um, If you're a Muslim Christian, whatever it is, you're going to be that religion. But once you go on for off on your own, you're no longer, you still operate as if you're in the system. And then you quickly realize, actually that system's no longer there i can pretty much do whatever i want because that system isn't there so i certainly went through a period in college where i was wrestling with questions that perhaps other people had already answered in high school i certainly hadn't so it, the msa wasn't necessarily the strongest guiding force in that way because i mentioned it was a more of a community it's come in Um, let's talk, let's hang out. On Sundays, sometimes we do Quran circle, but there wasn't a scholar. It was, hey, let's read the Quran together, read the English translation, and how does it make you feel? You know, nothing nothing very structured in that regard. And certainly I think what helped in the end, um, for me personally, out of that situation, uh, is um, I just thought logically, many people often get into this weird limbo zone where it's, I don't necessarily understand a lot of the stuff about Islam, but I'm not ready to be outright and reject the faith. So you're in this like limbo zone where you're half doing things, you're half not doing things. And for me, I, I'm I'm never a person that I liked. I never like to be in that zone. So for me, I had to decide, okay, if, for example, let's just assume under the assumption that Islam is not real. What would that mean? Well, that means that the Prophet Wasallam would have lied. Would ya yadu billah. And for me, the love and the knowledge that I had of the Prophet, for me, that was a step too far. I just couldn't accept that premise. And so then very quickly it became, okay, I'm not understanding these issues correctly. It's a problem with my understanding. It's not the the text or the content itself.
2: It's a humble way of looking at it. Myself.
1: And um for me that was really what helped me uh really get back on track and better when when questions came up. I, you know, it wasn't that suddenly I had the answers, but it was, okay, there's clearly an explanation for this that's that's suitable. I just don't know it, and I just have to work and find it. And, you know, the Bay Area at that time was a wonderful place. Um You had, at that point, Zaytuna wasn't established yet, so you had, you know, Imam Zayd, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, and Soheib Webb was still there. And, you know, the great thing is they were all very accessible. Um, You know, Imam Soheib had like a weekly halakha at uh, this masjid, and you could go up and ask him... Quite literally anything. I don't think there was ever a, uh, you know, embarrassment factor there. And I would say that's really what helped me out a lot is having that access. And, uh, you know, spiritually speaking, it was a great experience for me because I was able to, you know, build things up myself without, you know, a community or uh, a formal structure in place that you would get, you know, if you're with with your family and such.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. You you get out of Stanford, and then you work at a biotech company for a little while, and then... We meet up again because I'd see you maybe what once a year, once every two years, once yeah. twice a year or something at some dawa at their wedding, and um and then you take a sabbatical, Right. I think for a year, and then that's I think when we, you'd be in Chicago, so I'd see you, and then I noticed you were attending lectures and asking, hey, is there a program going on here this and that, and I was I was telling, I was, I was telling my wife, I'm like, yeah, Salman's is, like pretty interested in Islam, he's going a lot of lectures, and I started you started standing out a little bit in the Bengali community, like amongst the other average like Dacy kids a little bit. So then, you finish your sabbatical, and then an opportunity pops up for you to uh, work at McKinsey. So before and before we get into that, is that the same time you applied to medical school? Around uh, more or less?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I forget the exact dates, but it, it was around that time period um, that that happened. Yes.
0: So the story was correct me if I'm wrong. You applied to medical school. You didn't. You got rejected. No, you didn't get rejected. I was, just, <laughs> I was like, why would you do that on a, on a recording? So he, he, he won't say it. Last. I'm going to list off these schools real quick. I think you got into Stanford Medical School University, University of Chicago. Is that correct? Michelle, Did I, the, nice. uh, 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 can I say Harvard too or you didn't even try it? <laughs> Any, anyone else I missed, I just want to, sure, to make sure I got all covered. <laughs> I think the gist of the story is there. I think, um, so so See, you got you in. You summarized it. You got into these medical schools and you said no. And you, I told you at the time, I remember, I was like, you gotta tell the Bengali community just to like, just like to almost give them a middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, I don't really think that's there's any benefit in that. <laughs> Drop the mic. Or the thing is, in our like, in our you know, Desi committee, right? Yeah. Kids are sacrificing everything to go to medical school. Yeah. They'll go to Caribbean. They'll those go. They'll start when they're. They'll take them until the age of thirty to get into the program, right? And this dude gets into like two of the top schools in the country <laughs> ahead, and up. says, uh yeah, I'm okay." So talk to us a little bit about that. Um, you a little bit to your how the, your dad's uh, perspective was, but how difficult was that? Um, and then talk a, and also allude, talk a little bit about what we call herd mentality. You know, herd mentality mm-hmm. for our listeners is you're doing something because everyone's doing it. It's a cool thing to do. Um, you hear it for FYI, you hear it about a lot at like a lot of business schools. They, people will go in for a certain purpose and then they will go into like investment banking because everyone's doing it. They all got to mm-hmm. want to go for Goldman Sachs and et cetera. For mm-hmm. Dacey's, it's medical school. So talk to us a little bit about like that process. Like, did you just, did, did you, when you're applying, did you even, think you were going to go at all or was it just something just to like go through the process and just really prove make a point that I really don't want to go even though I got in
1: um, it's a good question i don't I don't think it was ever about proving anybody right or wrong uh, for me it was so so I should backtrack um, the the whole point of uh applying to medical school and things like that was you know like I mentioned my dad i think my dad certainly and my parents I think both would have Had a preference, I think, just like they're they're just like every other daisy parent, and for me, my dad just said, "Hey, listen, um, you know, it's you've already done the requirements because as a bio major, you get a lot of that done. You have you you have the you have had the capabilities to to want to go, so apply and see what happens. And I certainly had the so I took the time to apply mainly i hadn't i hadn't eliminated it as a career option quite yet it was something that i still had an interest in going but unlike other people who know from day one this is exactly what i want to do my thing was this is a potential this is this is something i might want to do i'll use the process as a way of vetting that interest you know uh medical schools it's 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 a pretty rigorous process just to apply. You have to write essays and then you get stuff back from schools and you have to turn around these essays in a couple of days. It's a very rigorous process. So I, I, I primarily use the process as a check of, am I excited to do this? If I, I can't even get excited to write about essays, like how could I even <laughs> do this as a career path? Um, and so at the end, it was uh, certainly a difficult conversation uh, with my parents but like I said, I went back to what my dad said. I, For me, medicine wasn't something I was going to be excited to get up at 5 o'clock in, in the morning to go do for 50 years of my life. And in terms of what you mentioned about herd mentality, I would say that it's... So for me, I've noticed this. This is uh, maybe a negative of mine. I like to be the contrarian of, in many situations. If, somebody, if you tell me to do something or tell me that you can't do something... That motivates me to prove you wrong in many regards. I, th- I think in, when you mentioned herd mentality, the problem is is that in my this is purely my conjecture. I, I don't know if there's evidence to prove this, but I think that oftentimes, especially in the Muslim community, there's this push of getting everything done by the age of like 30, whatever it is, you have to get married, you have to have kids, you have to have already uh, achieved this level at your job, whatever it is by the age of 30. And 30 is a, is a really short amount of time to get all that done. I mean, what are you going to do for the rest of the 50 years of your life that's remaining or whatever, however much time you have? And so I I think where herd mentality comes in is everybody else is doing this. Oh my goodness, everybody that I know is applying to this job or getting married at this point. I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to be left out in the cold or something like that. I think that's where herd mentality plays in. Whereas for, I, I think I've always had the perspective that Great. Everybody else is doing it. M- let me decide—is that even right for me? And uh, that's how I've, I guess, resisted that. Mm. But we're all—we all, we all have—we all want to be part of the group. I mean, that's that's a human thing to want to do. So I'm sure there's aspects of herd mentality that I have. It's just maybe in this one example, I don't—I didn't have that.
0: Sure. Sure. Okay. So then, medical school is not happening. So you go to McKinsey. So talk to us about
1: McKinsey. What's McKinsey about? Sure. So. Um, you know, officially, what if you were to ask if you were to go on the website and read about it, uh, to summarize what it is, it's a as you mentioned earlier, it's a global management consulting firm that basically serves clients in you know the private sector, the public sector, the social sector. and really what what the what McKinsey does is it tries to help companies solve their business problems uh, that are you know high impact and whatnot. But for me in particular, um, my experience has been it's a place where I've had the opportunity to challenge myself every single day. Um, you know, I, I, solve a different problem every single day at work. People push me to get better every single day. Uh, whatever it is, whether it's, uh, effectively communicating with other people, whether that's, um, being more organized, whatever it is, uh, people, there are a lot of good people to coach me up. And the other cool part is I get a qu- inside look of, at some of the most successful companies, some of the most successful people, how they operate, what considerations they have when they're running a business. Um, so that's how McKinsey has played into my life. Um, as for the process that you mentioned, um, since medical school wasn't so medical school I should mention is a very long process. It's like a year before you even start. Um, so around that process, I had reached out to uh, a recruiter that I knew from uh McKinsey, uh, sorry, from Stanford who does a lot of on-campus recruiting. And she put me through the process and um, I was able to get a job offer at the end. And it was a it was a tough decision at that point because it was, you know, do I do this medical school thing? Do I do this McKinsey thing? In the end, um, I just thought there's a couple of things I, that I thought of. One was, like I mentioned, I wasn't, there was that excitement factor. But the other thing was, if you think about the Muslim community, there's a ton of people. I think we got the medical uh, Field down path um, for a very long time, and so you know something like McKinsey, maybe not as many people can do, and I've had the opportunity to do it so that was also another factor for me to want to join and I've also made every sing- most decisions in my life based on the people, whether it was college um, when I vis- when I was deciding between colleges, I visited the people and if I liked the people that's where I wanted to be. Um, the particular people I met at McKinsey were really great, so I decided to sign on and uh, have worked there for two years now.
2: Yeah, man, that's a that's an awesome example of, uh, of, and I mean this in a positive way, like kind of like a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And the achievement, obviously, of medical school, it wasn't of getting into medical school. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to prove a point that I can get in. It's like, you know what? I got up to here and just something I don't want to do, right? And uh, I think some people, if they were in that situation, they would think, oh, my God, my life's over if I don't do this. So I have to But Alhamdulillah You know Everything happens for a reason You know Someone may have envisioned Your dream to be something But you found it in something else Right You know I think I think that's amazing How that happens with all of us We don't realize that it's happening And these little personal battles That we have in our life And even like our goal in our life Right But it's happening all the time mm-hmm. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Is taking us away from something And bringing us to something else You know And that's that same concept of dua Right we make a du'a, we want something to happen, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not actually granting it to you because He's answering your du'a in a different way, right? He's actually doing something else for you that you can't see right now. Mm-hmm. You may not even see it in this dunya, right? So, I, I mean, I'm just seeing this as an observation of, of kind of like your life. And I think, you know, uh, from our own lives and from other people's lives, these are, these are some of the lessons that we take, you know. It's, it's pretty fascinating, actually,
3: you know. What I, I'm more curious about, uh, when you're debating going to all these medical schools, why? Why keep on applying to all these different medical schools when you're not entirely sure? The way I I would normally have operated was probably just apply to a couple and see whether I'm 100% decided. And then you know those those admission fees are what around 200 bucks each or something every time you apply to one of these places. So I'm just wondering, like, what what's the thought process behind that?
1: It's a good question. I I didn't apply to many. I, for me, oh, yeah. it was um, these are awesome places. If I get in, uh, I seriously consider going. Uh, so I, I limited it that way because you're absolutely right. It does get very expensive. Um, and <laughs> I'd like to spend my $200 on something else than, you know, application fees, ideally.
2: I had a quick question about, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to skip the medical school portion and come back to McKinsey because this is, I'm really interested in this. Uh, what do you do on, on, a, on a daily basis? Like what's your, what what's your uh, protocol?
1: Yeah. So it, it depends because every day is really different, but typically, you know, you on a weekly, so you're assigned to a project, it's with a, a client and you have a team that you work with and Unless that, so I'm based in Chicago, but if the client's in Chicago, then it's just a matter of driving from my house there. But oftentimes that's not the case. They could be, uh, really anywhere. And so. I fly a lot. I mean, I travel Monday through Thursday, pretty much every single week uh, since I've been at McKinsey. Domestically
2: or internationally?
1: Uh, both. I've, I've I've had projects in uh, other places, uh, you know. Or so the other thing to also consider is uh, the client could be domestic. Uh, they could be based in a city in America, but all businesses now are global. So they may be based, they may be headquartered in the United States, but they have a division in Europe, Asia the Middle East, wherever it is. So you still have to make trips there because there's something that your work involves something there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've had to go to Tokyo. Uh, I was in Istanbul a couple of years ago and then, um, also been to Qatar a few times. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mahim was saying about Qatar. He said, you went there in the daytime. You came back at nighttime. Like not necessarily that. I think it was like, like I saw you at because, Ful- uh, Salman and I are in the same, uh, Arabic class at, through Fulaki It's to, I think you had went like during the week and you were back in this class, like the next, week to like i think you you went for like a day or two yeah
1: Something it was like, yeah, i don't know if it was
0: the same like you know leaving the same i don't know if i said that's possible but it was as quick as turnaround as you probably could, you could get <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh it wasn't the same day i don't uh, yeah i don't think uh i, I think that at that point i don't think there's enough hours in the day but yeah there was uh there was just a meeting i had to be there for a couple of days so i left i think that saturday or sunday and then flew back on a thursday and uh you know was back at this class the next Sunday.
2: Okay, very nice, man. Very nice. So uh, we'll talk about Fawake later in your other endeavors. But um, so yeah. So uh, what do you do? Like in the, so, just so our listeners and for myself, what do you do in this in, the, in this uh, consulting session? Are they all different or are they in the same of nature? Do you work in a specific? Area that no one else works in.
3: Yeah, I mean, management consulting is the, pretty fast. That's the the term. Yeah, is very kind of abstract yeah. and fast, yeah. and people don't really know. Well, what does what does someone do in that?
1: Right. So um, I, I can give you uh, an example of a project I've done. Um, so there was a there's a client we worked with who had this uh, medical device product that uh, that was targeted towards the specific people with a specific disease. Uh, the problem is that they weren't making any money on it. So they basically hired McKinsey to help them figure out okay, why are we making money and how can we turn this around? So my job was to figure out what are other competitors doing? So talking to experts, you know, doing industry research, reading analyst reports, that type of thing and understanding okay, these are the broader trends in the in this medical device space and what can our client do differently? that could boost sales mm-hmm. and so my so th- that was the big problem but and of that's course, generally
2: kind of what you do with every company that you're consulting. exactly there's okay. it's
1: usually one question you're trying to solve okay and there's a reason why i'm asking but continue yeah. yeah and of course that's way too big of a problem for one person to solve so you have team members who tackle individual components and at the end we give a recommendation we say okay look we've uh, talk to these experts who know this industry, this market very well. We've done this analysis that shows if you do this, you're projected to reach this goal. And at the end, what we, in this particular example, we, what we suggested was, Hey, look, you should actually do a joint venture. So co-invest with another company. And by doing this, they have some st- capabilities that could help your product do better. And then you have something to offer them that would be really beneficial for you. And together, you're actually both going to do really well and you're both going to be really profitable.
3: Or you could say you're overstaffed and you need to lay off 500 people.
2: Get rid of them. (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure you have to. And the reason I'm asking is, and um, uh, you don't have to answer this right away, is when it comes to a masjid now, right? And I don't want a masjid to sound like a corporation, but if if a masjid is not very successful as far as the people that are visiting or they're doing certain initiatives and a lot of people aren't coming to the masjid, it's that very uh, management uh, consultant uh, toolkit that someone can use to bring a lot more traffic into the masjid, right? And make the masjid a lot more uh, productive. So that skill set can be very well used for that. But not only that, I mean, even if you talk about... Um, if, you, if you're if you starting a certain initiative with a bunch of brothers, right? You guys are part of Hawake, which is, you know, it's more academic. But if you see that there's a group of brothers, right? And they're involved in a certain type of da'wah, whether it be, you know, like what Gain Peace does and, you know, bring people into the fold of Islam or, or clarify uh, misconceptions about Islam, someone of that capability of what you have, you can actually help those companies, right? You could actually be a consultant for them, right? And you can actually uh, let them know, okay, you know what? This this is what you guys are looking for. You're doing this completely wrong. So you can actually... You have that power to revamp somebody's
3: whole entire method of doing something. Given the right set of data, though, right? I mean, you, yeah, you, you, you have to, to, to be research. given that data from a masjid. Like, hey, this, these are our stats. They they have to want change. You can't just say from the outside, like, hey, I'm a management consultant. No, I'm, I'm thinking... No, on the, no, no, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. But from... I'm thinking from his perspective he he probably looks at um man if i only had this kind of data yeah i can probably improve people who are coming to the mosque by Uh, 500%. Yeah. 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 So uh, do you ever look at things that way? I mean. But the the way I'm saying it is I'm saying that masjids need to hire people like this.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Masjids need to hire people. Absolutely. That have that that same capability. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Because not only is it just bringing people into the masjid, but hey, what initiatives are feasible for a masjid right now? And this is our budget. This is the type of donations we get. But we want to exhaust all of our money so we can be the most productive and have the most progress, right? So what initiative would, I mean, for an example, would Arabic class be feasible right now? Mm-hmm. Would a dawah, would Islam 101 for new Muslims be? And if that is, then help us, you know, uh, you know
3: get, get better at that. Um, so or yeah, are it, we completely off base? Correct <laughs> to start, Feel free. Yeah,
1: point. I mean, uh, what you mentioned is uh, actually very interesting because um, there are a bunch of Muslims at, McKin- at McKinsey, and um, y- you know, we've actually done that. So, with certain organizations, um, we've actually gone and helped them. I certainly do that as well. And um, in addition to my work, in you know, my my actual work that I get paid for, outside in my own time, you know, I've worked with many nonprofits, education organizations, things like that, to to uh, to help them think through these issues issues. Um, when it comes to uh, the examples you, you you gave with Masajid and whatnot, um, I certainly think it's it, it could be very beneficial. And in terms of, um, Sim brought up a good point of people want have to want the change. Yeah. Um, you'd be surprised that um, in many cases, you could have the most amazing, logical recommendation possible, but people don't re- implement mm. it. And it's because they weren't they didn't buy into what you were suggesting. So mm-hmm. it requires things on both ends. You need to have people want to do it. And, and then the other, the actually the easier part is, <laughs> Hey, this is what you should do um, yeah. in terms of data. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: You don't have to mention your other Muslim organizations. You've you or other associates of yours at McKinsey helped out, but what kind of data would they look at and, in- with regard to Muslim organizations.
2: Wait, was it McKinsey itself that helped out, or was you guys as your own individuals wanted to help?
1: It moment? was uh, the Muslims as an individual. We, okay, we okay, did. okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so in terms of data, the reality is that um, when you're looking at an organization itself, you want data to more be, uh, more as a support for your arguments, um, because anybody, really anybody, can take an Excel document of financial numbers and very quickly figure out, okay, this is what the budget should be. That's not really interesting what's more interesting is what are the insights mm. um that come from that um you know you're you're spending way too much on this part of the uh, in the budget, budget i'm making this up you're spending way too much on this aspect well what does that mean what's the implication for that um that's what i think what are your desired results right you are you meeting
3: those those results that you're right the expectations that that um you're putting your budget towards
1: Exactly, exactly. Things like that. And with the organizations themselves, in terms of data, what I usually like to see is how many people are attending. Some of it is very qualitative. Like um, with an organization, I just suggested, okay, when you're done, when you're when you're doing your work, whatever program it is, um, ask people for feedback. Um, something as simple as that of, hey, are you really likely to come back to this organization? Um, on a scale of one to 10, how likely you are? And the insight part of that is somebody could take that. This is goes back to your point, Sheikh Armor. Somebody could look at that. OK, we had people score from one to ten, how likely they are to come back. And a bunch of people said seven. So the conclusion is, oh, great. People like it. If you look at um, a lot of studies in social psychology, that actually means that they're not going to come back because there's something called um, net promoter score. It's a, You can look it up online. But basically what it says is, and a lot of companies use this, um, is Unless somebody is super enthusiastic, so unless they're scoring a nine or ten, those people are really going to promote it. They're going to say, This event was awesome. You should totally come. They're going to post on Facebook, that sort of thing. Um, the people who are ones and twos, those are going to negatively detract. They're going to go around and tell people, Don't go to this. The vast majority of people, the two through or the three through seven, there are eight. Their attitude is, It was fine. Eh. That was it. Yeah. Um, so they're actually not people you want and so that's where a lot of these uh tool the toolkit you mentioned can be helpful is hey look you, you guys got a seven i agree that's more that's more you know quantitatively above average but actually in terms of social psychology that actually means people weren't that excited it was kind of a okay event so you're looking so, for nines and tens all the time
3: exactly and if you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings but you want to let them know <laughs> that you're not going to come Give him a seven.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's, that that makes you want to make you know get that high achievement all the time, the nines and tens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've got to keep that in mind. Hey,
3: no, no ratings of Mad Mum at sevens, all right? doesn't matter. I mean, all he's right, already listeners?
2: a Mad Mum Luker, so he's going to help us. No, no, yeah. no, he's no. going to make everyone i I'm talking
3: to our us. listeners.
2: You're a Mad Mum Luker now. You know that, right? We, once you're in, you're trapped. I've already <laughs> given you the five stars voluntarily. Uh, <laughs> that. Volunteer That's <leader.
0: laughs> a <joke. laughs> Yeah. Actually, Sheikh Amr, on that point, you've worked with a, a various amount of Islamic organizations and Salman and I talked in the past about, like, we work in corporations, and Sim probably knows this too. It's, like, companies that we call corporate culture, right? Uh, we, and you guys have, like, studies, or you you can actually like, rate companies on their culture. Um, have you ever done that with, like, Masajid, or, like, Islamic organizations to see, like... Because I, I think a lot of times we're talking about Masjids and the vibe there, we're talking about the culture, right? right?
1: Uh, absolutely. Um, so many people think of McKinsey, they think of what Sim mentioned, you know, it's very quantitative, it's a very strategic thing. You're not making, you're not profitable, so you need to do this specific thing. But McKinsey does a lot of things. And one thing that I've I've done many studies, this is called organizational health. Um, So it's the idea of, Uh, it's, it's essentially the health of your organization. How healthy is the culture of your organization? Um, we can all think of amazing companies that have, that everyone wants to work there. They, you know, do, give you all these cool perks. That's, if you want a quick and dirty thing, those would be examples of very healthy organizations. And there's other ones where you mention the name and people are like, "No, no, no, I can't go there. They don't, they don't even know how much they're getting paid, what the job is. But immediately there's this perception of that culture is so bad that nothing you give me can possibly be worth going there. And, So that's organizational health in a nutshell. Nobody's – I haven't done this with any massage or anything like that, but um, McKinsey does have a free um, organizational health tool that everybody can do. Um, If you Google it, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. But it's basically a set of questions that you can answer and you can get a good sense of are you creating – do you have a healthy atmosphere uh, for your company – or for your organization. And the reason why people may care about this hmm. is that studies have shown that if you have a healthy organization, you're actually likely to do better. Like financial performance wise, you're much more likely to be profitable and um, do very well financially. If you create a healthy culture, it be, and it makes sense, a healthy culture, you're gonna attract good talent, people are gonna wanna stay there, people feel like there's attributes of organization. So, uh, one of the dimensions, as an example, would be the organization is very open and trusting. Um, so the idea there is anybody in the organization, it doesn't matter how junior they are, how senior they are, they can make a suggestion to the CEO of the company. And the CEO may not implement it, but the idea is that they've at least heard it out mm-hmm. and they make you feel like you've been heard. That's awesome. Um, so things like that it's you can important. study. And,
3: and that's, you don't, don't you think you can make that parallel at our mustjids where if any person is able to be heard um, at the highest levels of the, the mustjid. Don't you think that the community members they feel more empowered? They feel like they're more part of that of community too. I feel like um, I'd be more interested in hearing from you in regards to what more other factors you've seen like that. Well, that that could prop that might be able to improve a masjid or other Islamic organizations. Things that we're good at, things that we might be bad at, because a I hate just talking about the bad things, you know, yeah, yeah, always no, 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 talk about bad things and our, or, you know, we Muslims need to do this or the Muslims We're are so not bad. doing that. Yeah. We're so bad.
1: <laughs> bad to the bone.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what, what other factors are there?
1: Yeah, so um, you brought up a good point of some things that our communities already do very well. Um, something that I have always liked, and I think it's very unique to Islam, is the aspect of brotherhood people who you've never met before, ever. Um, You don't know anything about them, but just because they share the same faith as you, you have an immediate affinity towards that person. It's something that you don't necessarily get in other communities to that same level. You know, for me um, at McKinsey, I love the people, of course, but um, when I discovered one of the people working there was Muslim, he and I immediately became really good friends. He's much older than me. Um, You know, normally speaking, if if we weren't, if he weren't a Muslim we may have hung out, we may have not, but because of that one small thing that we have in common, one at one small thing as in it's just one thing we have in common, that's opened up this whole thing. So I think there's that aspect that's really amazing. And I think that is the foundation of building a healthy organization. Um, so creating that um, affinity towards one another, I think is an amazing starting point and something that uh, the Muslim community uh, should be very proud of and nurture that as much as possible. But in terms of other aspects beyond that, Some of the other things is, um, it's related to the example I gave, but being receptive to feedback is another thing. It's important. There's an art to giving feedback that many people may not, uh, may not understand. Many, many people unfortunately have, um, in my experience from college onward is they give you, you know, the garbage sandwich. They give you, here's a positive thing. And then they give you, uh, the negative, which is oftentimes what they really think, but then they'll end with like a compliment. And, um, Most studies have shown that people find that very fake because it's like, okay, why don't you just tell me what's wrong? Like, why (laughs) ended with this compliment? It doesn't make sense. Um, so there's an art to it. You know, you, you give you tell people the positives, but you tell them the negatives and you always frame it as this is how your action made me feel. When you didn't hear me out on the suggestion I have, I had last week, it made me feel not heard versus. You never hear what I say. Why can't you do what I say? It's nobody can disagree with your feelings. How you feel, that's how you, that's how you feel. You can't, I can't argue with how my actions made you feel because that's personal to you. Um, so when you make it as this action made me feel this way, it makes, it it opens up a conversation where you can talk about, okay, well, I didn't mean to do it this way, but, uh, since you feel this way, now I know for next time I won't, uh, act this way. So that's uh, an easy way I found to give people feedback where it doesn't feel uh, combative or one person feels bad, the other doesn't. It's always about the action and how it made me feel.
3: We heard a lot about masjids kind of splitting up and members of a masjid will go and create another masjid. From looking on the outside, sometimes you come to the realization that, hey, this might have been a good thing. Have you looked at it... um, from your own experiences and seeing that, hey, this is probably not a bad thing. Although right now it looks like it's a tough time for the community, this is probably a good thing in the long run. That this organization need to break up; it's not being productive, and uh, the community needs to move forward. And it has to move forward in separate directions. Um,
1: mm-hmm. I I don't necessarily know if I have any specific examples, um, but I, I certainly think that you know just. Reading up on a lot of this, that's certainly always that's always an option. I don't think people should immediately jump to oh my goodness, my message is breaking into two because we all know examples of that. Um, and uh, one thing in regards to that idea that you just mentioned, this idea of delayed gratification is really what you're talking about. It's something that, it's a very fascinating thing for me. It's something I, I really, I personally have a strong interest in it. And, and it's something that you find even in the Quran. You, you know, one of the things I love is in Surah al Kahf. There's, there's a lot of examples of that. So, if you think of the story of the two orphans who whose father passed away and the treasure is, is hidden under the wall. And, um, you know, you, you of course read that and, you know, and later Khidr says that when the two boys grow up, they're going to get this treasure. But... I have always thought about the implications of that. The backstory to that is there's clearly a widow who is praying to Allah, making dua that I have two boys, I can't take care of them. You know, Allah, please help us, give us the money. And it's not coming. There is all this money buried, but it's not there. And at that point, you could take it as, you know, my dua is not being answered. I'm not getting what I want. But really what it is, is if you're given that money, People at that uh, the town that doesn't give somebody bread, they're going to steal this treasure. They're not going to oh, yeah. give it to a widow. And later, when the two boys are strong, they're o- they're older, they're well-established, that's when they're going to get that money. And you could look at it as, oh, no, this du'ad wasn't answered, or no, it's answered at the time where it was be- going to be most relevant to you. And so I would say that that's often the perspective I would have for two messages breaking up, that at this point... Yeah, it looks bad, but maybe in the long run there's uh, a benefit to it. And a real-world example, um, a, social, a social psychology experiment that they've done um, at Stanford actually was the marshmallow test. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. No. But they had – on campus, this is actually interesting, uh, at Stanford there's a, a nursery school called Bing Nursery School. It's on Bing, campus. like B-I-N-G? Bing yeah, like okay. the cherry. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, children there and as part of being on campus the the stanford psychology department actually has permission to do social ex- to do psychological experiments on the children there's nothing where the children are harmed or anything. Like they're not, you know, drawing blood or anything. But they're just observing their behavior. And as a result, many people want their children to go there because it's a really good school. But then the other thing is, there's these interesting experiments. So anyway, <laughs> I send my um, son there. <laughs> <laughs> have him commute already. <laughs> um, so one of the things they did that was very interesting was the marshmallow test. So they had a kid come in. And they would say, "Okay, Mahin, um, I'm going to leave this uh, Zabiha marshmallow on this table for you, <laughs> and fish um, gelatin <laughs> with fish gelatin, and um, you're you can eat it now. I'm going to leave and come back. If you can eat it now, but if I come back, if you wait till I come back, I'm going to give you two marshmallows." Hmm. And so the experimenter leaves, and he never comes back. He just sits behind the one-way mirror and watches the kid, and it's very fascinating. You get you got some kids who waited for like a minute and then just ate the marshmallow. They didn't have the willpower. There were some kids who had ridiculous willpower to the point where hours went by the kid wouldn't eat the marshmallow. They would, you know, the kids would turn their chair around so they weren't looking at the marshmallow. <laughs> they would like sing songs. They would, um, you know, do everything possible because in their minds it was if I wait, I get double the reward. And what's interesting, what's even more fascinating is they followed those children around in life. They did a longitudinal study where they saw where they ended up. The kids who displayed um, delayed gratification, who didn't eat the marshmallow, ended up being more successful in life than the kids who didn't. Wow. Um, Beautiful. And man. it's one of those things I, that's the biggest I'm the, the, the one predictor. who, i that type, man, who I would have <laughs> eaten that marshmallow in about five minutes. That's probably,
0: five seconds for you. <laughs> one of the things I struggle with personally, and hopefully you can give, I'm sure may our listeners do as well, uh, you've got a lot going on with work um, and Islamic activities and things of that sort. Um and a lot of times i will get caught up in something and it'll detract me like alhamdulillah i'm not playing pokemon go right but if I was it would be an example of something what happened to me was a few years ago I was I've been applying so I've been like trying to apply to business school for like last seven
1: years (laughs) you know
0: and I remember I was studying for the GMAT once right and then I heard about you know the show Mad Men yes um I heard about Mad Men I like how how the guys dress I was like I liked I watched a couple episodes I was like (laughs) I like it so I, I started like I was supposed to spend Thanksgiving weekend studying for the GMAT and I binge watched Mad Men <laughs> <laughs> over like the next five days, like every little waking moment. My wife would be coming home and like give me this look of disgust from her. And she was doing residency at the time. Like, I don't know why I married this guy. This <laughs> um, but that happens with a lot of guys, folks. Right. You know, something you, you'll a new movie will come out or a new show and you'll get hooked on it or oh, NCAA tournaments on now for a month. so I can't do anything else. Um, How do you get around that? Because you've got outside interest too. I know you watch sports. How do you deal with, like, the impulses of life when you're trying to, like, get, like, work done for your job, but also pursue other, you know, endeavors?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. The reality, the, you know, the short answer is you can't do it all. You have to give up on something. Um, Usually people give up sleep. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, you know, the reality is, is that uh, exactly that point, if you're somebody that sleeps, uh, 10 hours a day, but you want to do all of these things and you want to visit your friends. Um, you really have to start prioritizing and cutting out things that, uh, are more important for some people. And that doesn't mean by the way, sleep is the first thing to go. Some people are such that they need seven hours to sleep. Like you, if they get six hours, they will not be able to function well. So for that person, sleep is the priority. Uh, maybe they do something else differently. Um, they cut something else out. Um, but for me personally, I'm, uh, I like, I'm very organized. Like, if you were to look at my phone, um, even today, um, I have the whole day carved out in terms of, you know, I'm going to, you know, talk with you guys during this time. I, you know, it's going to take me 30 minutes to get home. So that's built in there. Um, one of the, so the reason I do that is, uh, if you think of work, people schedule their meetings on their calendar. They'll have from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. I'm meeting with my boss and I'm going to talk about this. The problem is nobody ever schedules their work. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, you don't have to go to that meeting. If you just give your boss the work, he'll probably be happy. Um, yeah, you may need to explain what you did and do something brief, but you can have somebody else do that. At the end of the day, if you did the meeting, but you didn't carve out time for work, that's a huge no-no. You're, you're going to get in trouble for that. But P- what's interesting is nobody ever schedules the part of their day that's actually important, which is the work. So I personally always make sure that I have my meetings. And I also have times where I'm working. And if people say, Hey, um, so in that example, I'm meeting my boss from one to two. Okay. Well, it's going to take me an hour. So 12 to one, I'm going to block out time to do that work. And somebody says, Hey, I want to talk to you from 12 to 12 Most people's reaction is, Yeah, that's fine. I'm not doing anything because your calendar is open. But for me, it's no, no, I actually can't. I have time. That's time blocked out. I can't. So let's pick a different time.
2: I like that. That's a, a complete opposite. Cause usually when we set up, so we yeah. set up appointments. I mean, based on what people want us, want to meet us. But our work, it's like, oh, I already know when I'm working, but we never actually plan it, Uh, you know, wow. Like I'm doing
1: X,
0: Y, Z for this deliverable, right? Et cetera, right?
1: Yeah. Or it doesn't even have to be that like for, um, it could even be for, for your weekends, right? You're meeting your friends in, um, I don't know, Elgin or something where it's somewhere super far away. Well, it's going to take me 45 minutes. Uh, During that time, I'm sitting in the car doing nothing. Can I get my calls with my friends done during that time? Things like that, think, or, you know, can I, I, for me to get, um, one of the things I love to do, let's say is listen to, uh, a podcast or something during that 45 minutes, the mad mom looks, you can <laughs> give a plug. I, um, I wasn't going to say, that, go <laughs> um, you know, knock one of those out. Right. Yeah. Um, so I always think of ways of, you know, making your time, m- making the best use of your time, uh, for me, since I travel so much, uh, that's where I get my reading done. And I make sure it's I don't do work related stuff when I travel because, uh, you know, work takes up a good portion of my day. So my travel is all the things that I would love to do, love to read. I spend that time um, reading that. Um, So that's something that um, you can always do. In one of the things you mentioned is um, people have all these distractions and whatnot. Um, They want to watch this game. I think it's important to do that. I think you can't do nothing but work um, all the time and you know, have a sane life, you're going to you need those distractions. But I personally use the approach of I have a limited amount of hours in the day. I need to make sure that the entertainment I'm pursuing is worth it. Mm. Instead of binge watching the show, maybe research what people are saying. Is it even good? Uh, because the last thing I want to do is spend two hours watching the show and it ends up not being good.
2: Man, it wasn't even worth it. That's a horrible thing.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And then it's like, well, now I have to go back to work and the time I wanted to spend wasn't even worthwhile. So it's
0: kind of like food too. Like you don't want to use calories.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Like if you're, uh, you don't, you don't want to use, you know, you can't eat everything delicious in the world. You know, you, you have to limit it to some degree. So French fries have gone out the window for me.
3: (laughs) I'm only taking quality calories now. Yeah. Like, uh, even if it's terribly unhealthy. <laughs> no, that's why I'm, I'm just trying to say that. Oh, okay. Um, I see what we're getting out. I was like, where did I, that come from? No, no, oh, I'm. I'm, I'm, right no, I'm like, Wait,
2: I'm, dude. I'm talking about McKinsey here. No, no. <laughs> so, joking, the
3: point I'm, 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 I'm trying to get at it is uh, cutting out the fat, <laughs> no, right? No, I, yeah. so, I get it. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. But what about. Uh, Situations where you were talking about some like the qualitative data, right? Where we, where I feel like we as a community kind of work off of qualitative data all the time. We're kind of extreme in that where where, for example, the amount of charity organizations we have, does the data match that need? Is the question like, do we really need that many charity Mm -hmm. organizations, or could we have been working together and? You know, working towards the same thing. You, know, well, do you mean more you, from like
2: a fundraising aspect, or well, I'm just saying just that
3: that uh, in terms of social attitudes, right oh, in I our community. You. When do we put our arms around someone's shoulder and say, "Hey, I'm sorry to break your dreams, brother. This is not <laughs> what you need to do. <laughs> I'm going to break your dreams into a little, little, yeah, tiny man. little pieces." But um, that's a difficult task. because. Um, you see a lot of effort. I'm sure even in organizations, there's yeah. projects that, that organizations have and, you know, companies are just pouring money down the drain. And we have so many examples of that. Like Microsoft for the longest time was, was criticized about Xbox and how much money they're just pouring down the drain just to compete against Sony and their PlayStation market. It's just an example. Mm-hmm. How do we, um, uh, have these conversations in our community where we kind of direct our resources in more efficient manners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do do you feel, you understand what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I know. I think it's a very good point. Um, I guess the, just a structural problem is in many Muslim countries, there's the ministry of, um, of endowments. And, you know, they decide this is what the country is going to do. Uh, the issue is in the United States, we don't have that, right? It's, you know, I could start an organization tomorrow. And as long as I get the money, nobody's telling me, hey, you know, there's this huge problem in the community that nobody's addressing. Why don't you do that? Uh, you know, I think that it's a it's a definitely a tough conversation The uh, to tell someone that, hey, look, this work that you're putting in. Uh, you spend a lot of time on. It's actually not worthwhile. It's really hard to tell somebody that, um, and nobody wants to. And nobody wants, even to. even though the, the the
3: humanitarian thing would be to tell them that. <laughs> like, <hey. laughs> and but nobody wants to be the one who is uh, on the receiving end of that person's uh, tirade. You know, like yeah. how dare you tell me this? Yeah, I'm trying to do humanitarian work here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, that's where I, I personally, I, the way I always view things is, I have a group of close friends and family who can have real talk with me. Yeah. And they're the people who I listen to. Um, if they have something negative to say, I take that much more seriously than if some random person comes up to me and says something negative, I really couldn't care less what that person thinks. Um, I'm not going to pay any attention to that person or waste any time because uh, people are always going to have... Those people always exist. You can't waste your time. So um, perhaps what I would suggests is perhaps everybody has that group of people who can have that real talk with you that they listen to you and when they come and say hey look this organization isn't working then maybe you decide okay I need to use these resources to do something else or maybe it does make sense to shut down
3: yeah I mean just from our own experience uh, starting up this podcast and stuff we've you're you're always subject to so much criticism from Mm -hmm. so many facets of of our listener base you know there's so many people who love it it's uh, people who don't like it and you're gonna hear feedback from all kinds of people and you're you're constantly trying to figure out well is there a way I can make everyone happy and you have you come to terms with that you're not you're not gonna make everyone happy and there are going to be people who just don't like what you're putting out Um, and then you you realize okay well whose opinion do I take right and then at least from my own perspective, I I have a few people that I trust their opinion and I try to take advice from them and help me make a, the best decision possible, you know? So I feel like if, if we as um, community leaders and, and uh, masjids and stuff like that, we, we have that kind of exchange and we have trusted people who we can reach out to in different cities and different masjids and organizations all working together, trying to extract the best from one another and tell each other the truth. Like, Hey, I don't think you're doing this right. It's your decision to make, but uh, I'm only looking out for you. Yeah. And we can have these kind of conversations a little bit more easily. I feel like we could move forward a lot more faster.
2: Yeah, man. I, I'm, I always wonder though, I, I, I always wonder about that and I think – I don't think us as human beings are ever going to get over that. I think you have to be close to somebody to do that. Yeah. I and mean, even I- then
0: it's kind of difficult. Yeah. And then there's the issue of ego, which is a natural yeah. human tendency, yeah. right? Yeah.
3: And competition. 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 Yeah. Competition. Yeah.
0: You want to be the, the – I mean a lot of times we have these organizations, right? Was because it's like you've got a – there's so many. It's like I want to run my own show. I try to deal with that organization's red tape. That's the excuse you might use, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: And it's not even sometimes it's not even an arrogant Saying sometimes people think, "Hey, what I want to do is what what I think is productive." These people are kind of holding me back. Sure, exactly. You know, and it's not always like, "Yo, I want to run my own show." It's, it's right. I'm not, I didn't. I'm not saying that that's what you were. A no, but, that, too, that, that, but that's, that, that's another angle as yeah, well. Yeah, it's, it's another angle. With, is like, yeah. "Yo, man, I'm a productive dude, or I want to be productive, and these people are not letting me be productive." You know, and that can cause a split in organization easily. Sure, I sure. can totally see that happening. So, I, man, it is. I mean, now that we're talking about all these things you start to realize how difficult some of these things could be to bring people together and, you know, bring some progress, man. But someone's got to do it, you
0: know? Are, are there uh, Muslims out there that are like, you know, let's say... So the main, for listeners, the big three consulting firms are McKinsey, Bain, and Boston Consulting Group. Uh, Bain is famous because Mitt Romney is the founder of Bain Capital. Is that sound about uh,
1: right? He didn't found it, but he was an early employee. But or sure, early that's employees. largely correct, yeah.
0: You know, um, so these are the big three, and there's a lot of alumni from these firms who are Muslim. Um, mm. th- are you aware of any thoughts of a lot of these al- alumni coming together to start a consulting firm, like a boutique firm that would service Islamic organizations?
1: I don't know of any effort to do that. The one thing I will say, though, is um, I certainly have been able to meet a lot of. So here's one thing I, I will say many people don't know. There are a ton of extremely successful Muslim Muslims out there in the United States who have done amazing things, you know, just a few examples um, that many people may not be aware of. In California, there's a there's many very famous venture capital firms that fund, you know, Google and all these famous tech companies. Many of them are Muslim. Uh, There's some there's many Muslims out there who um, work at these venture capital firms. There's uh, I don't know if many many people have heard of Y Combinator. It's a startup incubator. The COO is is Muslim. So there's a lot of these people who are in very good positions and who have also the financial resources to, um, to make a great impact. Uh, Sher- Dr. Sherman Jackson, um, he mentioned that, uh, one of my friends, um, met up with him and he was talking about how, uh, when you look at universities, people give grants on the order of, you know, five to six million dollars at a time or twenty million dollars at a time. And there are professorships that are in doubt where the professor doesn't rely on any outside income because somebody gave a huge grant and the, the earned in, the earned revenue off of that investment is what funds everything for a really long period of time. And so I think for us as Muslims, you know, we haven't, many of us have our second generation, first generation, whatever it is. We haven't necessarily had the time to build these, get to that level, but that's certainly where things need to be at some point. And when when you mentioned that there are a lot of these successful muslims maybe why aren't they uh as involved i think part of it is you always have to realize that at a certain level when you have um a large amount of money or you have a lot of influence you're really using your t- the biggest quantity that's limiting is time and if you're going to get involved with something it can't just be writing a check um and just forgetting about it um you want, you need something where you have a say in the organization and it's something that you believe in. And of the five million things you could be doing, this is really impactful. And I think that's the issue. There aren't, in my experience, many Muslim organizations kind of do similar, almost are interchangeable. Um, there aren't necessarily as many unique Muslim organizations where you say, wow, that, that, that organization is doing something that I've never heard of before. And so the problem is that that same Muslim, they're not just in funding. Muslim organizations are involved in Muslim organization and just Muslim uh, causes. They're involved in so many different things. You're competing not against another Islamic organization. You're competing against these companies that are, uh, you know, building water wells in parts of Africa where there's no water anywhere. And um, they're giving their donors like virtual reality cameras to go and experience what it's like when you know the drill first hits hit the water and the water starts squirting everywhere and this whole town is you know celebrating because they have access to clean water for the first time in forever um, that's what you're competing against with many of these individuals and so that's I think the the problem it's it's that we many of the talented folks in our community, Uh, to tie something back to something we said earlier, aren't going into the nonprofit sector because it's not necessarily a career path that they find that they think they can make a career out of it. It's more, I have a really strong passion for this. That's why I'm doing it. Um, It's never, hey, I can actually join this organization and just do my job there well. I'm not there because I... I'm super, uh, I, it's not, I'm there because it's a job that pays the bills, but also I can use my talents. It's not, yeah, even if you paid me $0, I'd still do this. If you're relying on that category, the latter category, it's really hard to make your organization grow mm. to the level that you want it to.
0: Okay. There's something that I know you may have learned from McKinsey, um, that I know a lot of consultants are forced to learn. You go to a new client, it could be a completely different industry mm-hmm. and you have to get up to speed very quickly in what they're about. Mm-hmm. And then talk to a little bit, talk to our listeners about how they can shed some light on some tools they could use as far as learning how to learn quickly and absorb a lot of information. Uh, because there's so much in the world going on. And, you know, you don't want to, like, like, for yesterday, we had the, the coup in Turkey, right? Yeah. And so people now, like, on social media, everyone's talking about Turkey. But a lot of times I didn't feel comfortable talking about it because I don't know anything about Turkish politics. Right. So let's say I want to learn about Turkish politics. How would a McKinsey consultant learn about Turkish politics?
1: <laughs> um, for
0: example, as an example, yeah. or you could pick another example if it's more suitable.
1: Right. So I would say the first thing is a mindset thing. So for me, when I learn information, I put the burden of understanding on myself, not the person I'm learning from. So uh, there's a classic example. Someone explains, uh, let's say the example you just gave, the Turkish uh, coup that happened, uh, the attempted coup, and somebody will give some explanation of this is what happened, and this party did this, and this party do- did that. And at the end, the person say, okay, got it. And that person has no idea what just happened. They didn't absorb any of the information. People feel uncomfortable saying, actually, I didn't understand that. Could you define this term that you used? They feel like, oh, I have to know this all of a sudden, so I can't ask. And at the end, if you, if somebody else asks, they have no idea what just happened. They, they can't even explain the, the coup. So I think the first thing to do is make sure that the onus of learning is on yourself. For you to say, okay, I understand, that's actually a huge bar. And it's okay to keep saying, no, I actually don't understand that. Uh, And they explain a third time, a fourth time. Just keep saying, I don't understand it. Can you explain it differently? Until you get it. You should always put the onus on the other person uh, to explain it properly. And for you to say, I understand, really means I actually understand. Um, So that would be the first thing to Hmm. do. Uh, The other thing is, oftentimes, if it's a subject you have no knowledge of, try to put it into your own words. So, one of the things I like to do is if someone asks me a question, I'll give them the answer and ask them, okay, explain it to me. So, that way you you have a very clear understanding of, okay, that person actually understands what I said because they really explained it to me right there on the spot. Um, one of the things my dad likes to say is if you get a question wrong, you really got two questions wrong. You got the question that the person asked wrong. And then the explanation you gave, you don't even know what that is. Because if you knew what the explanation you gave, you wouldn't have used that explanation to answer that question. So you really got two questions wrong. So I think that's similar, right? You have to frame it in your own words and ask someone, is this correct? And then they can say, actually, no, what you said there should be this. Hmm. So I think a lot of it is mindset. And in terms of resources, again, this goes back to the scheduling aspect. People have so, There's so many distractions out there that... People assume all hours, like time is linear. So if I spend, okay, let's just pretend to learn about Turkish politics, it takes you five hours. People assume that, okay, if I do 30 minutes now, 30 minutes another day, you know, so in 10 sessions like this, I'll learn Turkish politics. And what people don't realize is that for us, time isn't linear in the sense that uh, there's certain hours that we learn, absorb a lot more information. Mm. You know, after eating a meal, you know, you feel tired. So you could spend three hours doing something and really you, you don't get anything out of it versus there's a period where you're just in the zone and you did 30 minutes and you knocked it all out of the park. So I think that's the other aspect is, um, to make sure it's as distraction free as possible. So for me, I actually turn off if I'm really in the zone where I need to learn something. Um, I turn off my, I put my phone on do not disturb. So, if somebody really needs to call me, they'll call me. I think it's if you call two times in a row or something, it actually goes through. Mm. I don't put notifications. Like, I think notifications are, they're a distraction because they keep buzzing. And your instinct, no matter how much you try, your instinct is, let me check it out. Yeah. Um. So, I actually turn off all the notifications. And when I need to check email, I'll open up my app. I'll click on the icon and then all the meshes will download. So I'll spend, you know, I'll take a 30 minute break after like two hours and then knock all that stuff out. So I think the other thing to do there is make sure you the time that you have is actually dedicated towards that task. So, you know, put your phone on silent, whatever it is, turn off the Wi-Fi and just read the articles that you want and, and get that done. And then the other th- part of it is there, nobody says that you have to be an expert on any topic. The bar just to have a competency in something is actually not that high. Just have a basic understanding of here are the high level facts of what happened. That I, you know, I I get that from reading the New York Times. You know, the the coup that happened, if we're using that example, I I just know the facts that what the New York Times read about it, all the, you know, intricacies of Turkish politics. I, it's fascinating, but I know I can't be an expert in that. And with the basic facts that I have now, that's, fine for me I don't need to be an expert in that so just also it goes back to prioritization right so you don't have to be the expert on Turkish politics just get the basic facts and you know move on to what else. I
2: think that's a good point because a lot of times when we uh, want to research something before we start we think that we have to be an expert in it right and yeah. we don't think about basics okay what are what are five things I should know to know the basics of this whole entire thing and I think it's yeah, really important man because people get flabbergasted and they give up before they even start you know <laughs> I think yeah,
1: yeah, and also in those uncles, you know, when you're with uncles and they're saying stuff, <laughs> oftentimes people feel like, oh, you know, all these people know stuff, and if you question people, they really don't know. I mean, if you were to really <laughs> dive deeper, accurate, yeah. it's sometimes not accurate. It's not. It's not even. Uh, it's a superficial understanding of the topic. <laughs> yeah,
0: right, right. So moving off McKinsey and uh, back into like some of your personal stuff, Lou. So you're there for a year, and then, alhamdulillah, you and I had the opportunity to go to Hudge together, mm-hmm. um, and you know. And I think I joked with you about being on the podcast before because I know we're, you're studying Milwaukee, Arabic, and you recently joined Salam Institute with Sheikh Akram Naduwi. But you're also involved uh, with an organization that we just started in uh, Chicago, uh, Maruf. So we're at – this is listeners. The story is we're at uh, our first dry run for Maruf Chicago, and Maroof's an organization that started in Milwaukee. And we're finished We finished up. We're at another brother's house. We're praying Maghrib. And this brother pretty much... I, we asked Salman to lead prayer for whatever reason. This brother should ask, ask Salman, like, Hey, so how much Quran do you know? He's like, I don't know. You know, a, a bit. And then he's like, listen, man, how many Jews do you know? Like, this dude put him on a spot. <laughs> and he was like, I know 10. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, like, when did you do this as a kid? He's like, I think it was like, no, last few years. Like, what do you mean? Like, three years? Like, yeah, about that. So you had Jews Ummah Amma when you started? So... Tell us about how you're doing Arabic, Sheikh Akram's class, but and your methodology for like and just Quran three juz while working like eighty to hundred like you know whatever hours you work in McKinsey. I don't know that it's not a nine to five job, right? Yeah, um, yeah. you know, how's that happening?
1: <laughs> um, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, you know, like I said, I, I plan out my day. Uh, You know, uh, as best as I can. I I think it goes back to the idea of knowing yourself. I think oftentimes, I think I alluded to this earlier, there's this perception that you have to get something done by this age. Um, There's nothing that says that. Um, So uh, for me, honestly, if you're talking about the Quran, uh, memorizing a bit of the Quran, uh, part of it is I just felt that I connect with my prayer better when I know what I'm reciting. Um, It started really simply as that. Like in, for me, when Tarawih came, it was really hard to focus if what's being recited, I have literally no idea what's going on. Um, so it really started as something as simple as that as, hey, okay, let me just learn a little bit more. So at the very least, for some portions of the night, I'll actually know what's happening and I'll uh, I'll connect better in the prayer. But nobody nobody says that you have to, you know, the standard Quran memorization is in two years. You do a page a day and you'll get done in two years. Um, nobody said that that's the rule. Um, you could take, uh, you know, Aram Khattab took... I think it's 12 or 20 years to memorize Shulat al-Baqarah. There's nothing that says you have to do it by this age. So for me, I was really inspired really by Sheikh Ahmed Nua'ina's story where um, I believe he's a pediatrician. I think he's still a pediatrician. Yes. And um, he memorized two lines per day. Uh, and that was it. And But he made sure that there was no days off. It was just two days, two lines every single day, no breaks, which uh, is pretty manageable. I mean, that's not difficult to do. But it was a, something very consistent. And um, I don't know how long it took him, but uh, it wasn't two years, I'm guessing. Uh, so something like that is really where it started for me is one is, I think, more importantly than anything, it's that I think I, I really felt my prayers get better if I know it's being recited. So that was really the reason it started. And then the second thing is, you know, you can get started if I never finish. And I never finish. I mean, I, I'll put in the effort. Um, but the- Well, did you do like an a day or was it? Um, Multiply a day or yeah, I, I, an hour no, a month? No, no, no. I don't know. I'm just wondering. Yeah, so I, I usually do it in chunks, so there'll be a period when, because there's sometimes I'm on a project where it's uh, a little bit more rigorous, so I have less time. Uh, but then there's some times where I have a little bit more time. So in those months, uh, it probably averages out to maybe like two lines a day or something, but um, I'll usually do like in a section in a in a period of time, I'll do like half a page or a page a day because I have the time. Other times um, I don't, so I actually won't do any of it uh, or I'll try to do at least a line or something like that. Um, so I just break it out to whatever it is that I'm capable of doing and uh, and just use that as my methodology but i don't have a, a a target of i have to memorize the whole quran by this point i, I it may not even happen i don't know Well, how, how do you keep track of these
3: overarching goals in your life like you you want to learn arabic you want to memorize quran how are you um like is is there like a graph or something that you're putting on your in your car a st- sticky note on your steering wheel saying hey don't forget uh Uh, Your Arabic, or don't forget uh, memorizing Quran. You know, uh, a lot of these goals end up falling off. I I make a lot of these type of goals, and the majority of them fall off the table.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things is, um, studies have shown if you write a goal down, you're much more likely to accomplish it. So actually on my iPhone, I have in the Reminders uh, iPhone app, you can make lists. So I have lists for everything. So I have a list of these are the 10 things I need to get done today, And I'm one of those people that I get a lot of energy by crossing things off a list. Um, Like if (laughs) I have 10, you know, I feel much better about myself. If, you know, I crossed off three things off my checklist uh, that I need to get done in the day, that gives me a lot of energy and I'm uh, excited uh, and I have energy to do the rest of them. Uh, So a lot of these goals, I have them all written down and... I'm the type, I, I do have an Excel document for memorizing Quran that I keep track of. I did this, this page, I have this many pages to go, um, at this current pace, I'll finish by this point or that's whatever. Awesome, man. That, that's awesome. Oh, that is impressive. Um, dude. That's, that's uh, the way to do it. I for, for me though, it makes it real. Yeah. Uh, because oftentimes people have, okay, I'm going to do this goal. Well, y- okay, well, what's the lead time? Uh, it actually takes two years to do this part of it. And then uh, people have this tendency of, Oh, I'll just figure it out. and, it never works if, whereas if you have a very rigorous schedule um even if you don't follow it at least for me it makes it more real that i've at least put in the effort and there's a actual plan in place that uh it can be accomplished
0: right as far as um talk i know for example also you i i before the show we we're talking about, like you're kind of like you do like an experiments on yourself right you mm-hmm. you he, this guy running land texts text me he's like yeah i've had meat all week man i feel great <laughs> so like and most and that's very like uncomfortable for a lot of people or you cut out sugar not completely but you limit it yeah um like when you go into these when you when you make these decisions to do things like that like what, what's the whole thought process there
1: so for for all these pro- all these things you mentioned um, it's purely for me it's not for anybody else it's um, purely I want to feel good about myself and it's not like a oh I have this goal of losing weight it's it's purely a uh, an exercise that I find fascinating because um, you want to know your own biochemistry exactly I want to know what makes me better uh, what how, how am I at my best because we've all had that experience where we Eat something, and afterwards we're like, "Man, that was a mistake." <laughs> That's like every day for me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, or you know whatnot. So I just personally have found, and this is purely me. It could be very different for other people, but uh, you know, I personally have more energy if I eat a bowl of vegetables than if I, you know, if I'm at David Burke and I'm having like one of those twenty ounce steak, uh, creekstone steaks or what have you. Um, I just personally uh, have more energy. And that doesn't mean I don't eat meat, I don't eat sugar. It's just, again, that idea of make it worth the calories, if you will. So, um, you know, if I'm having a steak, I'm having it once in a while, and I'm not going to have some, you know, low-quality steak. I'm going to get the really nice, like, dry-aged, grass-fed one from or whatever it is. Um, So that way, that becomes a treat. It's not, oh, I haven't had—because I haven't had meat in a while, the— the times that you do, it actually tastes, be- I think it tastes better because you're not having it every day. And a part of it also, there is an ethical component for me personally. I don't impose it on other people. I don't look down upon somebody if they don't. But, um, uh, for me, I visited farms and a lot of the stuff is really hard to unsee. Yeah. And you know, I, 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 for me, it's, if there's this animal that's not treated well and you're eating it, it's, uh, I just think that that isn't good in the long run for me personally. So for me, I always my my philosophy is whatever it is I do, I have to be able to live with myself at the end of the day. So that's what I try to uh, try to solve against. And there's some things that are hard to do. Let's be honest, like um, clothing. Um, it's oftentimes manufactured in not the most ideal settings. You're right. But it's really hard not to avoid that. It's really really difficult. Um, but there's certain things that you can. um, like, like Things like chocolate, for example, I try to limit because uh, that industry doesn't often compensate the farmers the way they should. Um, that doesn't mean I don't eat chocolate. It's just I eat very limited quantities. And I, I Yes, I have to pay more for the better type of chocolate, but uh, I do it because it's higher quality and at the end of the day, it becomes more of a treat. Like Just with anything, if you have something every single day or indulge in something every single day, it becomes less special. Yeah. But when you limit it, you enjoy the product more and... Um, I, I personally find it to be better.
2: No, it's principle based, right? Because you have like the you have. I think Whole Foods sells the chocolate that's you know it's slavery uh, free, yeah. savory free. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's very principle based. Not only is it
0: uh, solidifying your principles, but it's going to end up being better for you anyway. You know? Right. Before we wrap up, Sheikh Amr, I'd like because we talked a lot about what Salman's got going on with work, but also side projects. And I think the word in I think in the Islamic vernacular is like himma. Yeah. You know uh, talk. Talk to us a little bit about what Himma is uh, before we wrap up. Yeah,
2: Himma is basically, um, it has to do with willpower and it has the ability to um, have courage and not give up on that courage. And the series of questions that we asked him have a lot to do with the human being. He always wants to, uh, if he's a healthy human being, obviously, he wants to keep on progressing, right? And in order to progress, he needs to be steady he doesn't have to take major leaps, right? Which is why we said that we want to, sometimes the mistake that we make is we want perfection right away, uh, or we want to be a specialist right away, and that's not actually good for you, right? Which is why the hadith of Rasulullah صلى he said that the best action to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the action that is very consistent, wa in qalla, even if it's very small actions, right? And we always want to strive for the best, and we always want to strive for what Allah loves, and sometimes that's not easy for us, but we still have to have Ulluul Himma. There's a scholar, Egyptian scholar who wrote a book called Ulul ul Himma, right? Which is the the pinnacle of having uh courage and not giving up and, and being brave at the same time. Um and not having fear. And the reason why that we have to explain that is anything that's new to us, we're gonna be afraid of. Anything that you know, when someone says, "Okay, do this," and if you've never done it, I think all of us have been put in that situation. It can be uh, very intimidating, right? And what the first thing we have to understand is that if Allah Subhanahu wa Taala put us in a situation, نفس, نفس, that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is not going to put you in a situation of something you can't handle. It doesn't mean that you're going to complete it. It just means you can't handle it right so completion is not always the 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 test to make sure that you're a good person or a bad person it doesn't matter it's how did you handle it right and how did you through this test and how through this trial how did you handle yourself in realizing that a test and a trial is purification from allah subhanahu wa taala right and you should never give up and you see that even an ant right and i think some of the examples that the scholars give is the ant right the ant it never gives up um even though it's so small but allah subhanahu wa taala gave it its capability of lifting six or eight times its weight right and mm-hmm. the human being is given intellect right and if he if one thing doesn't work for him he doesn't give up on his himma on his courage, then he tries another way, right? And that's the advantage we have over other species is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us intellect of approaching things in so many different ways. And we never give up. And that's why, you know, we, we, we exhaust all of our options. And the same thing goes in relationships, right? And like mm-hmm. marriage and all that kind of stuff. You, if one thing doesn't work for you, you're not just going to say, okay, you know what, it's over. The, the, the marriage is off now. You can't do that. You know, you got to, okay, did I exhaust this option? Did I go through this? Did I I get counseling? Um, Did I go through a scholar that may specialize in this? So himma and this courage has to do with not giving up and realizing you have lots of options. Right. And that's just a portion of it. I mean, the book talks about so many different things, Um, but it is very important as a believer to continuously, continuously strive for what is the satisfaction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we never give up on that. Right. And uh, yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, that's basically what I have to say about himma. But there's so many different approaches to, to, you know, having uh, himma.
0: Saman, thank like for coming on, um, is uh, I know you're on social media, but you don't post anything. That's probably why you get stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good idea. You know, uh, but where can people find you Like, uh, if you're in the Chicagoland area?
1: Yeah, yeah I'm on uh, most of the social media sites, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Um, it's my first name, uh, last name. If you Google it, you'll probably find me. People want to email me, they can also do so. Uh, my email would be my last name, R-A-Z-Z-A-Q-U-E at uh, alumni.stanford.edu.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks again for coming off, uh, coming on the show today. For our listeners out there, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can email us at themadmamlooks at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-M-A-D-M-A-M-L-U-K-S. You can also engage us on Reddit. You can also follow us on Twitter at themadmamlooks. Like our Facebook page for uh, Sheikh Amr Saeed, Sim, and Mahin. This is the Mad Mamluk signing off. Assalamu Alaikum.